Reading is from Esther 5, starting at verse 9 and then ending at six, chapter 6, verse 14. Haman went out happy that day in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, he observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, and he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many children, sons, and the way the king had honoured him and how he had been elevated above all the other nobles and the officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I am the only person, Queen Esther, invited to accompany the king to a banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But I think all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hung there, hanging on it. Then go to the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Harmon and he had the gallows built. That night the king could not sleep and ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, be brought, to, brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthania and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway and had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer, outer court of the palace to speak with the king about the hanging of Mordecai and the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, ordered the king. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought, of, thought to himself, who is there the king would rather honour more than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring the royal robe the king has worn, a horse that the king has ridden, and one with the royal crest placed on its... I've lost my place. <laughs> placed on his head. Then let the robe... And the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them let the the robe and the man the king delight on, and lead him around, lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, "This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour." Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse. Do as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming him, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honour. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had just happened to him. His advisers and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai 
before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin. You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king went to dine with Esther, with Queen Esther. As they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked the Queen Esther again, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even half the kingdom it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found, found favour with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Then King Xerdes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Who is the man that dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The, advers the adversary and the enemy is this vile Harmon. Then Harmon was terrified before the queen and the king. The king got up in a rage and left his wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman realised that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king was returning from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Harmon was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in my own house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Carmen's, Harmon's face. Then, then Habana, one of the, the eunuchs attending the king, said, The gallows, 70 feet high, stands by Harmon's house. He had made it for Mordecai, who spoke up and helped the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman and on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. May God bless to us his understanding. Um, if you've got your Bible there, keep it open. Um, if you don't bring your Bible to church, can I encourage you to do that? Uh, we do have a few in the foyer. We, we are getting some more. Uh, but it is, it is good for you to uh, be yeah, holding God's word in your hands as we consider it uh, each week. Because you want to make sure that you're hearing what God has to say to you and not just my words. But how about we pray as, as we hear God speak to us through this part of his word this morning. Our Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we can know you, that in it you instruct us and teach us and train us in righteousness, that in it you show us your plans for this world and for us. We thank you that at the centre of it is your great plan of redemption in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask now that as we open your word, as you speak to us now, would you reveal to us what you would have us understand? Would you shape us and mould us into the conformity of your will? Would you grow us to be more and more like the people that you want us to be? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have just joined us, we've been working our way through this story of Esther. 
the story of how a Jewish orphan girl comes to be the instrument of God's, uh, sorry, the instrument that God uses to save his people, the Jewish people, from complete and total destruction. Marty's already reminded us, but so far we've met Xerxes, the most powerful king in the world and a power-hungry, self-indulgent pig. We've met Esther, the Jewish orphan girl, who, through fairly sketchy circumstances, finds herself as the queen to Xerxes. We've met Haman, the king's second in command, but the only one in the empire with a bigger head than the king. And we've met Mordecai, Esther's cousin, adoptive father, casual saviour of the king, but also the one who refuses to bow down and honour Haman. And because of that, because Mordecai won't honour Haman, Haman decides to get revenge by killing him and every single other person that shares his ethnic heritage. Which, unbeknownst to the king, also includes his new queen. That's the story. Last week, we saw Mordecai begging Esther to take this problem to the king. And Esther is scared. Anyone, including the queen, who approaches the king uninvited, gets killed. But eventually, she agrees to go. And so in chapter 5, Esther goes to the king. And you can just imagine what that might have been like for her, right? She's walking into the king's throne room knowing, heart pounding, knowing that doing so might get her killed. I used to have a boss like that. (laughs) But luckily for Esther, the king is in a good mood. And so not only does he not kill her, which is always good, he even offers to give her exactly what she wants even up to half of his kingdom. This is the biggest kingdom the world has ever known at this point. He offers her half of the kingdom. He writes her a blank check. Whatever you want, I will give it to you. And so what does Esther do? She seizes the opportunity to invite the king to dinner. Why didn't she tell him the real problem? Well, anyway, the king and Haman come to Esther's banquet. And again, the king offers Esther, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, what is your request? And again, Esther asks them to dinner, a second dinner. Why doesn't she just tell the king what Ham- about Haman's plot to kill her and all her people? Why doesn't she just expose Haman then and there? Was she scared? Probably. Was she procrastinating? Maybe. Or... Is it just that God wants to give Haman one more day on earth to witness the exaltation of the very person that he is trying to kill and to show us how God always acts for the good of his people? Maybe. We're not really told. But Haman leaves the banquet. He's happy. He's the only person that gets invited to third wheel on the king and queen's dates. He's very pleased with his privileged position. But then seeing Mordecai, well, that wipes the smile off his face. And so he goes home and he sulks. He goes home and he plots. And so chapter 5 ends with Haman building a gigantic pole in his front yard on which he plans to kill Mordecai the Jew. It's a bit sick, isn't it? It's, it's disturbing. 
but it's not as foreign as you might think. Because, brothers and sisters, Haman's sin is one that you and I are probably very familiar with. Now, I suspect you don't go around building giant gallows in your front yard. I hope you don't do that. I think it would be a violation of Noosa Council's local laws. But, but we, we want the same thing Haman wants, don't we? Tell me, you want that recognition. You want that admiration. You want people to honour you just like Haman does. And don't we get angry when someone fails to give us that thing that we think we deserve? Friends, watch out for your ego. Watch out for that bitterness you feel when someone else gets all the praise. Watch out for that longing you have to be worshipped and adored. It doesn't end well, friends. Because either it will destroy the people around you, or as it does for Haman, it will destroy you. That's a little side note, because that's not what this passage is actually about. We jump back into chapter 6. We've met with a surprising detail. The king could not sleep. Which seems like a really odd detail for the author to include, but it's really important, and we'll come back to it in a moment. But I don't know what you do when you can't sleep. A friend of, at my previous church let slip once that when she couldn't sleep, she would listen to the church's sermon podcast and crash in no time. I like to think that she was only listening to the other preacher's sermons, but I'm not so sure about that. But when the king can't sleep, he has his servant read to him the royal records. Which would put you to sleep, wouldn't it? And as he lays there being bored to sleep by the royal minute takers, it just so happened that he hears the story of how Mordecai saved his life. And he then learned that Mordecai had never been rewarded for that. And so he set out to fix that oversight right away. And it just so happened that Haman was in the court eagerly waiting. I think he's he's waiting there for the king to wake up so he can get him first thing in the morning to speak to the king about killing Mordecai. But when the king asks Haman in verse 6, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? Haman is so self-obsessed that he can't possibly imagine that the king would want anyone else but him. And so he gives the king a detailed description of exactly what he wants. It's like when Josiah told me that we should buy mummy Lego for Mother's Day. (laughs) I'm no mind reader, but I don't think he was thinking about mummy at all. And so Haman starts describing in detail his desires to the king. He wants a parade through the streets on the king's horse, wearing a royal crown and royal robes that the king has worn. He wants to look like a king. He wants to be dressed like a king. He wants to ride on the king's own horse and be treated like a king. You just can't help but think that maybe Haman would like to be king. You wonder if the king knew that Haman was talking about what he himself wanted, whether the king would actually approve that request. But the joke's on him because in verse 10 10, comes the twist. Just as he was about to have Mordecai killed for dishonouring him, now Haman learns that it is Mordecai who is going to be honoured by the king. And to top it all off, Haman is the one who gets 
to parade Mordecai around in the city. It's just beautiful, isn't it? (laughs) But it gets worse for Haman because Haman barely gets the chance to go home and recover from his public humiliation before he is summoned to Esther's banquet. And for the third time, the king asks... Oh, sorry, one too far. Oh, we'll just leave that picture there then, shall we? <laughs> For the third time, the king asks Esther, what is your petition? What is your request? And finally, Esther answers. Take a look. We're in chapter 7, verse 3. It's the most humble answer. Queen Esther answers, verse 3, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Can you just... How humble is that? If we were just sold as slaves, oh, we wouldn't bother you, but we're going to die. Well, the king is furious. He wants to know who's responsible. And we're all reading it going, you dummy, you you are responsible. You approved this plan. But it's Haman who tricked him into making the edict. And so Esther points the finger, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Well, Haman knows he's in trouble, doesn't he? He starts pleading with Esther for help. That only gets him in more trouble. And with an ironic twist of fate, Haman is led away to be impaled on the very pole he had set up to kill Mordecai. Mordecai, the humble one, is exalted. Haman, the exalted one, is brought down. The enemy of God's people is defeated. Now, that's not the end of the story. There's more to come next week. But, but so far, it's a satisfying story, isn't it? It's, it's a good feeling seeing horrible people get what they deserve. But that's not what this story is about. You see, this story looks an awful lot like karma. But there's actually something else going on here. You see, first, there's a lesson here about embracing your true identity. Because throughout the story, we've seen a massive change in Esther, haven't we? The future of the Jewish people depended on her. She was the only person in the whole empire who had the ability to save God's people from genocide. No one else could do it. And at the start of the story, it didn't look like Esther would be able to do it either. I mean, at the start of this story, this girl is a disaster, she, she sleeps with a man who's not her husband, she marries a pagan, and then to top it off, she, she keeps her Jewish identity hidden. She, she's one of God's people, called to be set apart, to be different, to shine as a light in a dark world, but she, she keeps that hidden. She doesn't want anyone to know. This is not your typical Jewish hero. Esther's the last person you'd pick to save God's holy people. But do you see what changes in Esther? There's a turning point in her life. And it happens 
when she embraces her true identity. And, and I'm not talking about the way people talk about embracing your identity today. Esther wasn't true to herself. She didn't look deep inside and discover who she really was. Being true to yourself is the worst thing you could be. Seriously. Look deep within yourself. Do you know what you'll see? Well, I look deep inside myself and I see a lying, cheating, self-obsessed sinner. Don't be true to yourself. The, the reason we're here, the reason we, is that we need changing. We need Jesus to change us. Esther wasn't true to herself. No, Esther became who God intended her to be. At the start of the story, Esther hides the fact that she belongs to God. She doesn't want anyone to know that. She's scared about what might happen to her if she lets anyone know who she really is. But after Mordecai speaks with her in chapter 4, she stops hiding. She embraces her identity. She has a new sense of confidence. She says, if I perish, I perish. She goes to the king as one of God's people, on behalf of God's people, and because she does that, she becomes the saviour of God's do you see? When Esther becomes who God intends for her to be, there's a turning point. Everything changes. When she recognizes that living faithfully as one of God's covenant people, when she recognizes that that is more important than being a Persian queen, it's more important even than protecting her own life. When she embraces her identity, God uses her and he uses her to save his people brothers and sisters there is a lesson here for us because if you are a follower of jesus if you're here this morning and you, you call yourself a christian if you're not by the way we're really glad that you're here you are very welcome here and we hope that we can get help you get to know jesus but right now i'm addressing you if you are a christian from the moment of your conversion, God gave you a new covenant identity. You become a changed person. Inwardly, spiritually, you become a new creation. You are a child of God, a member of his body. Brothers and sisters, you have a new identity. The question is, will you embrace it? And that's a question that we need to answer each and every day. Because every morning when you wake up, you have a choice. You can choose to hide your true identity like Esther did in the beginning. You can choose to hide the fact that you belong to Jesus. And that's the safe option. It's the socially acceptable option. You can choose to more subtly just emphasize other things about yourself. You go about your day as first and foremost a dad or a grandma or a student or an employee, a golfer, a coffee addict, anything. But way down the list, a Christian. You can choose to hide your identity, obscure your identity. You can choose to ignore your identity altogether. Or you can choose to be what God has already made you. A child of God, a follower of Jesus, a sinner saved by his grace, a fellow worker in Jesus' mission to proclaim the good news to the nations. 
And friends, when you embrace that identity, God will use you in incredible ways. Not because you're amazing and not because he needs you, but because he loves. He loves including us in his good work. He loves using his children to display his love. He loves using his children to shine the light of the gospel. He loves using his children to strengthen and encourage his church. Friends, this is a decision you need to make today and you need to make it every day. Will you embrace your true identity? Will you embrace the person that God has made you? Will you be today, first and foremost, a follower of the Lord Jesus? And will you embrace that identity no matter what it brings? Esther embraced that identity knowing full well that could lead to her death. Will you allow yourself to be used by God as an instrument of his grace? That's the first lesson from this passage. Today could be your turning point as you embrace that true identity. But there's another lesson here, and I think it's probably a more important lesson. Because humanly speaking, the turning point in the book of Esther comes when Esther embraces her identity as one of God's people and plucks up the courage to bring her people's plight to the king. But I say humanly speaking for a reason. Because when you read the book of Esther, the author actually wants us to see that there is actually another turning point in this story. Another moment at which everything changed. The moment at which the great reversal began. And it's not what you would expect. When we come to the book of Esther, it's a book of two halves. It's a mirror image. It's it's a symmetrical story. It begins with two banquets. It ends with two banquets. The first half ends with a banquet where Haman is the guest of honour. The second half begins with a banquet where Haman is exposed and killed. In the first half, God's people are about to be destroyed. In the second half, they become the destroyers. In the beginning, Mordecai is a humble nobody. At the end, he's a powerful leader. You see, it's this perfect symmetrical, perfect, new word. It's a perfect symmetrical story. And smack bang in the middle of the story is the turning point. The moment at which the momentum shifts. The moment where everything changed. And we see it in the very first sentence of chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep. That's the turning point. It's smack bang in the middle of the book, and it's there for a reason. It seems like an insignificant detail. It seems like a triviality. You kind of wonder, why does the author even bother mentioning it? There's much bigger concerns in this book than the king's sleep. But it becomes the thing that actually changes everything. Because if the king didn't lay awake that night, then he wouldn't have had the royal records read. And if he didn't have the royal records read, then he wouldn't have known about Mordecai saving his life. And if he hadn't heard about Mordecai saving his life, then Haman probably would have succeeded in killing Mordecai and 
the rest of the Jews. Which is why the author of the book of Esther wants us to know that the whole course of human history, the very existence of the Jewish people into which Jesus would one day be born, the whole thing hinges on the fact that one night in the year 474 BC, the king of Persia couldn't sleep. And you might think, that's a nice coincidence. You might think that's just a slice of plain dumb luck. But the author of Esther wants you to see that there is a God who sovereignly works behind the scenes in ordinary ways and extraordinary ways. He ordains miraculous things and he ordains the most mundane, ordinary things. But he does it all for the good of his people. And friends, the thing that we need to see is that that is the way that God still works today and in our lives. So you might not notice him, but friends, God is working. He has worked in your life to bring you to where you are today. You've had those it-just-so-happened moments in your life. I mean, even the way that some of you became Christians is testimony to the work of God behind the scenes in, in kind of mundane, ordinary ways, but ways that have huge significance. I mean, I've heard some of your stories. Eddie, Eddie became a Christian through a gospel tract being dropped in his family's letterbox. Just imagine that, you know, whoever delivered that tract went, walked past his house that day. What if it was raining and they didn't go out? Things could have been so different, but it just so happened that God brought that person to deliver that tract into that letterbox so that Eddie's family would hear the gospel. Julie's not here today, but Julie became a Christian because someone approached her and invited her to a course where she heard the gospel. What if that person just hadn't invited her? What if they decided to invite someone else? Seb, you became a Christian through a crazy neighbour who wouldn't stop inviting you to church. Imagine if he gave up after the tenth time that Seb said no. Friends, these aren't coincidences. This is the work of our God, a God who works behind the scenes, through coincidences, through insignificant details, through mundane realities. But he uses them and he changes everything. And he does it because he has promised to use his power, his infinite power, to bring his children into his eternal kingdom of his son. Friends, it's no accident that you're here. It's no coincidence. God is working. And he will keep working. And his plans won't be stopped. And so, friends, we leave today with with two realities side by side. We leave here today with an encouragement, a challenge to embrace our identity, to offer our lives as instruments of God's grace that he might use us to achieve his plans in the world. But we do that with, at the same time seeing that God sovereignly orchestrates all things. And those two things go hand in hand. They, they seem incompatible. Either, you know, God is sovereign or we are responsible. But no, the Bible says no, both. 
We are responsible and yet God is sovereign. And he uses our good efforts and our poor efforts. He uses our successes. He'll use our failures. And so we can go out today ready to work, to serve, to worship God with our lives. And we do that in confidence that God is at work in us and through us. We do that knowing that we will not derail God's plans. We do that not depending on ourselves, but trusting the one who works behind the scenes to achieve his good plans. Let me pray. Lord God, we marvel this morning at the way that you work that you would use miraculous things, but that you would use really ordinary, everyday realities, and that you would use them to achieve your good purposes. We praise you for the way that you worked in the time of Esther, that you worked through these apparent coincidences, these, uh, these it-just-so-happened moments, and that you used them to achieve your good plan to save your people to preserve your people so that through your people, your saviour would one day come. We praise you for that and we thank you that we here today have benefited because you saved your people in the time of Esther. Lord, we praise you that you continue to work in that same way today, that you continue to orchestrate all things for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, we pray that that would motivate us to work, to serve, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice offered wholly to you. We pray that you would help us to be the people that you've created us to be. We pray that you would help us embrace our true identity as your children so that you might work through us to bless those around us. Make us instruments of your grace, we pray. Not so that we may be glorified, but that all glory may go to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.